So tonight we come to the offerings. And in the first five chapters, there are five distinct offerings. There's the burnt offering, which is a free will offering. You have a choice in it. Chapter one, it's it. It has to be a male, the offering, and it has to be, you know, without blemish. Of course, all the offerings have to be without blemish because they represent Christ, the sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the burnt offering was free will. You have a choice. No one makes you give that offering. It's, it's your choice. You just choose to give that offering. The second offering in chapter 2 was the grain offering. That one is a memorial offering. So if you brought this one, it's a memorial. Like, you know what? God's just been so good to me. I've been so blessed. I'm just going to do something really special with the Lord, and I want to build a memorial. Now, there's all kinds of memorials at different places you go. Like when you go to Huntington Beach on the bike path, if you sit at one of those cement bike benches, uh, it says, in memory of, right? That's a, that's a memorial. If you walk on Oceanside Pier, there's all the names of the people who helped pay for the pier redo, so that's a memorial to them that they contributed to that, and they did such and such things. Um, my dad once gave a large contribution to the World War II memorial, you know, the one that was vandalized a month ago, in honor of his father and his aunt and his uncle, who all, and his cousin who died in, during that time in a B-17 crash. He gave a large sum of money to help build that World War II memorial. That's a memorial to the service of Americans uh, in World War II and what they gave. And my dad, I've been to the Vietnam Wall with my dad, and he has friends that are on that wall that died in service with him, as does Raul Reese and other Vietnam veterans. And that's a memorial. It's actually called the Vietnam Memorial. And, of course, the Korean Memorial is there as well. And my dad served in the Korean War. So these are memorials that we understand in society. But this is a memorial with the Lord. So in the Bible, we see various times where, like, Jacob... The Lord's in this place. He poured, you know, the, the water over the rock, and it's a, the Lord is in this place. It's house of Bethel. He gave it a name. It's a memorial. We know that when they went to the, the Jordan River, the 12 tribes, as they're going to the promised land, they all picked up a stone, one representing each tribe, because God parted the Jordan River as well as the Red Sea, and they built a, a, a memorial on that side as they came into the promised land as a memorial to the Lord, his faithfulness to them. It's a memorial to the Lord. So this, the grain offering, was a memorial offering. It's the only one of these that doesn't involve blood. And it's not to be confused with your first fruits, which is a separate offering, which you might do with your produce, which you would do with your produce otherwise. It's just, you're just saying, yeah, the Lord's been so good to me. I just, I'll just bring this full, big old bin of wheat. It's the best wheat I got. And I just want to say, Lord, I'm building a memorial right now. You've been so good to me. I just praise your name here. And this is for Aaron and the family. And, you know, we just love you guys. And here, have that. It's a memorial offering. It's not a have to, it's a get to. Then the third offering is a peace offering, which is interesting because this one uh, certainly involves blood. It involves, you know, a, a bull or a goat or whatever. And it, in, in, it brings about peace. So it has to do with peace between the one bringing it. There's bloodshed. There's, confe there's confession laying on of hands. There's bloodshed. And it's to make peace with God because of something that's gone wrong in the relationship with somebody. So I just want to make peace with God. This is the offering. And we know that Jesus is our peace. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. That's chapter 3. Chapter 4 is the sin offering. This is interesting because this chapter declares to us, if anyone sins unintentionally, which everybody does, if the priest who's got the anointing on him sins, which they do, this is what you do. If a leader sins, this is what you do. If one of the common people sins, this is what you do. If the congregation sins, this is what you do. For all have a sinful nature, and if they do this, they can be forgiven. So the sin offering it really speaks of that sinful nature that we all have. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the sin offering, it covers everybody. The priest with the anointing oil, the neighbor, the everyday person, the rulers from the, from the palace to poverty. Everybody has a, a sin offering thing where unintentionally they've sinned and they bring that offering. That's a sin offering. Now, we didn't teach chapter 5 Tuesday night. We'll get it this week, but I do want to reference it because they're a cluster, five that go together. Now, the trespass offering is for a specific sin. And again, this involves blood. So if you heard something and you shouldn't be hearing it and you should speak up and it's like slander or whatever, just something, and you don't speak up for what's right and you don't make it right, you're accountable and you've trespassed against the Lord. So they're actually not doing the right thing from what you've heard you're accountable for. Then there was also touching something that you shouldn't be touching. Again, this is actually hygienic, like a dead body. So that's hygiene. And you've done that. shouldn't do that. Touch the dead body. 
there's guilt and that is considered trespass. And then speaking with your lips to do good or to do evil, that is a trespass offering. Uh, that's trespass because you spoke and you didn't do it. You didn't do what you said you were going to do. So that sins with the word, uh, with your words. And so you see here, it's hearing, it's touching, which is actions and words, and then realizing and then confessing. And so that's a trespass offering. So you come with a trespass offering, not just because I'm a sinner, but I definitely, this is what I did. It's the details of your sin. Our children are sinners, but when they bonk each other over the head in the toddler room, that's the trespass. When they say no and try and punch you, that's the trespass, right? Okay, so that's the distinction. We know they're sinners, but when they show it, that's, this is the trespass. Now, with the trespass offering, it goes into making things right, restoration and uh, making it right. So in some trespasses, you would know you did something wrong. I burned those people in that deal. Well, in the trespass offering, hey, go make it straight. Go pay them what you should have paid them. Like a Zacchaeus. Remember when Jesus came to Zacchaeus' house? If I've robbed anyone, I'll restore fourfold. See, that's the idea behind the trespass offering. I've been a bad little tax collector. I've taken advantage of it. And now, uh, Jesus, I, I'm going to restore it all. That's the heart that's moved to make it right. So we can't always make our sins right, but sometimes we can. Sometimes it's a phone call saying, I'm sorry. Sometimes it's just like paying for something. For example, my sister, when she was homeless for years on the streets, she stole a silver bar from her son, Jimmy, that my dad gave him. And it was worth about $1,000. And she stole it when she was on a drug binge with some drug friends and broke into my dad's house and stole that silver bar. Well, years later, when she was in a rehab program, CRASH, which is an acronym down there in San Diego, they make you make right whatever you can make right restoration. So she got her job and got back on her feet at Macy's and working during the holiday season. The, about the first $1,500 she met, made, she sent, she gave Jimmy $900, which was the price she got for the silver bar. That's the idea behind the trespass offering. Not only do you acknowledge what you've done wrong, but you can do something right to make it right, you do it right. So I want you to not just bleed all these offerings together because they are distinct with the Lord or blend them together. They are different. Trespass, sin, peace, grain, and burnt offering, they all have little unique details that st stand out to us. And we looked at those on Tuesday night with the four, and we'll get the trespass of on this coming Tuesday, plus the law of these things. And this is where we're at in Leviticus. But as we think about these offerings, and they all in some way or another speak of Jesus Christ, we want to come back to chapter 3 and the peace offering. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is our peace. Jesus said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world give I to thee. We're told in Romans 5 that, therefore, having been justified by faith in Jesus, we have peace with God through Jesus. He truly is our peace. My peace I leave with you. Peace be with you. These are words that Jesus speaks. Now, as the Holy Spirit led the early church in the book of Acts and then in the writings of the apostolic writings, the idea of peace comes up many, many times and having peace. And they faced some very challenging times. There was generally opposition to the church locally in Jerusalem, and as it expanded into the Roman world with a Greek culture and a Roman culture, they faced a lot of opposition and a lot of conflict, threats, beatings, and all these things. And so you will see in the apostolic writings of the New Testament a lot of references for peace. Now, we know in the book of Revelation when Jesus establishes a new heaven and new earth that there's no more tears, no more sorrows, and there is no more war. And there's a lot of prophecies about that in the Old Testament as well that there's just peace. The mark of his kingdom is peace. He's the prince of peace. He's the king of peace. Peace. Now, peace is an external thing in one sense where you don't have war. So if you study European history or even uh, the history of the Americas and the various Indian tribes and how they would make peace and make peace treaties and break peace treaties and so on and so forth, I mean, Europe just, if you even just study the last 300 years of Europe, it's amazing. He's your friend. They're your friends this year, but they're allies, and then you're at war with them next year. And, and, and even in World War I, they felt like the two of them together should be fighting the French because that's historically how they fought in Europe is England and Germany united against the French, which is how they defeated Napoleon after he came back from his exile, after he sacked Moscow, lost his army, and was exiled. So these peace treaties that men make, they come and go. They come and go. Armistice deals, you know, stuff like that. And you have a peace treaty that ends World War I, but it's very heavy on the Germans, and so eventually they're going to rebel against that, and they break that peace treaty, and everything Hitler did from invading the Sudetenland and then going into 
Austria, then the Czech Republic, and then Poland. He just broke one peace treaty after another. He made peace with Stalin, not to do anything beyond what they did in splitting Poland, and yet he still invaded Russia a year later, and everyone knew he was going to. That's the kind of peace the world gives you. Man gives you peace treaties and then stabs you in the back. That's the history of humanity. But God doesn't do peace treaties like that. No. When God promises peace, he's promising real peace, a peace that no one can take from us. And this peace offering figuratively and typologically speaks of the peace that we receive each person individually when they respond to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. As we look at chapter 3, concerning the peace offering, it says in verse 1, when his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, speaking of the general congregation, if he, and we can say or she, offers it of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hands on the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood around the altar. That is the altar of bronze. When we talked about that, you know, building the, you know, the tent, the Ark of the Covenant was gold. That would have been exciting. Building the altar of bronze, not nearly as exciting. Once a year, one person gets to see that, oh, the Ark of the Covenant, where the Lord is. It's private. Only the high priest once a year. Super de duper special. The outer court, the bronze altar, it's bronze. And you know what you get there? Blood. All day long, day after day. Blood, blood, blood. Because the wage of sin is death, the life is in the blood, and somebody has to pay for the sin. And so we know early on from Genesis chapter 4, when Cain and Abel brought their offerings to the, to the Lord, that Abel brought his first things of the flock, and he brought faith, and he brought blood with faith. Cain brought vegetables, like the grain offering, but he needed blood, and he didn't bring it in faith, and God rejected it. And so we understand, as we go through Leviticus, we'll see this, the life is in the blood. Our blood is everything. The life is in the blood. And so the whole idea behind the animal sacrificial system is, is substitution, propitiation, one for another, substitution. So I'm a human being. I sin, 1500 B.C., and I bring my peace offering. This offering is a substitution for my sin, and this offering is going to die because of me. It's not my dogs. It's not my cat or my guinea pigs. It is the lamb. It's going to die in my place. Something that did nothing wrong, no consciousness or moral cognitivity to have done something wrong, is going to lose its life because of me. Because the wage of sin is death, and this animal is going to die in my place. Now, I love animals. I talked about this Tuesday night. Many of you love animals. I rescue roly-polies from my grandkid, okay? Uh, Velzi, that's roly-poly. Let's put it right over here. I've rescued two black widows lately where they're not in a threatening spot, but they needed to be in a more non-threatening spot. And as you know, flies must die. That's one thing. So all flies must die. There's just, I'm sorry, it's, they're, they're like Canaanites or something. I don't know. All flies must die. It's just, there's, but anything else I'm going to try and save for sure. I saw a centipede. Uh, you know what? Just, yeah, you're going the right direction. I just don't like to kill anything. I don't like to take life. I think most of us understand we value life because God made life, and it's life with a purpose. And even in a fallen world, I could never, growing up, watch anything where animals kill other animals. I still can't. It makes me sick. It repulses me. And I just, I love life. God's into life. But he established this type of death because it's either I die or the animal dies, and somebody has to die. That's what's got to happen. And so with this peace offering, we see that we're going to receive peace with God in a fuller sense than the peace offering did. And as we look at this text, we see, first of all, the personal responsibility of somebody to bring that peace offering. You need to bring the peace offering. Mom and dad can't bring it. Your spouse can't bring it. And your adult children can't bring it for you. If he, if he, if she, if she, if she, it's a personal pronoun. It's not a plural pronoun. It's a personal pronoun. An individual is responsible to bring that offering. You want peace with God for your sinful nature, your trespasses? You bring your peace offering. You need to go over there in the flock and grab that sheep or grab that goat that has cultural monetary value, but if you like animals like I do, I mean, it's just the sheep. You know, it's like, ah. Oh. And shepherds know the sheep, and the voices know, the, shepherd, the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. We understand that. 
He's just like, oh, it used to be so hard to do. But you got to go get that sheep, whether it's from dad's flock or your flock, or you go buy it. And it's like, yeah, look at that sheep. You got to walk that sheep to the tabernacle. Like, dude, don't, don't look at it. Don't even look at the sheep. Come on, come on, come on. When I had to put both dogs down in the last three months, those of you who put down dogs, you know how hard it is to put a dog down. My dad's dog, one Monday, my mom's dog, next Monday. Both dogs were 16, both dogs were dying, both dogs were suffering, and it was a humanitarian thing to do. I had to drive to Vista to the vet that knew Goldie for 16 years, and it was so hard to put Goldie down. Goldie lived with us for a year. Like, Goldie trusted me. I fed Goldie. I took Goldie and walked. Goldie had been my dad's dog. You know, I was like, hey, Goldie, let's go for a ride. Do you know how hard that is? Maybe you do. Real quick, if you've ever had to put an animal down, raise your hand. Then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Especially if it's really close to that animal. Oh, man, when I put Buster down, that was the hardest thing ever five years ago. He knew. He was dying. Congenitive heart failure. Last thing he did was look at me and kiss me. You know, so hard. And then a week later, after putting Goldie down, they stopped. There was a family biz, family veterinarian. They all know Goldie. They, she was abandoned with them 16 years ago. My dad took her for them. Everyone knows Goldie. They shut it down. They closed the doors. Everyone came back to say goodbye to Goldie. I was hiding behind my mask because I was crying the whole time. That's one good thing about the mask. You can, but you still kind of, you know, like it's kind of hard to blow your nose too, but... So a week later, Barbie calls me on the weekend and says, Dad, uh, Joey, uh, Daisy's, Daisy's, she's dying. The, the, the heart's failing. Daisy survived my mom's death and made it to a whole new season where the house got remodeled. She survived all that. Good old Daisy. And da- Daisy did not like men. I'm one of the three men she liked. And she saw him and kissed me. I'm like, Daisy, we, we got to go for a ride. And Barbie said, I'm glad it's you, not me. Jimmy came up the day before to say goodbye to Daisy. Daisy was like my mom, you know? Like, Daisy's like my mom's dog after mom died. So when you talk about going to the flock and grabbing that lamb, and you've ever lived this, and a lot of you have, can you imagine? Kinsey for you, let's go. Daisy, uh, Goldie was a piece of cake. She's like, ah, yeah, just sleep and meet you at Rainbow Bridge, you know? Just, she's like, I'm tired all the time anyways. Daisy's like, I know what's going on here. <laughs> Daisy knew. So you come to the Aran's altar with your offering, and that sheep starts, it's like, that's going to get you. If you've got humanity in you and a tender heart, that's going to get you. If you're ruthless and you're callous, it's not going to get you, which is probably why you wouldn't be bringing the offering, because those kind of people generally reject Christ. Not always, but. So you bring it. It's your responsibility. You got to load it up in the car. You got to go. You got to pick it up and you got to take it. It's your responsibility. It's no one else's. As Barbie said, I'm glad this is your responsibility. Thank you. It's yours. And when it comes to blood covering your sin, making peace with God, it is your responsibility. For as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. But we must receive him personally. And you know that here. But it's good to be reminded in such a crazy time as July 2020. There's no auto salvation. It is a personal responsibility to grab that offering, lay hold that offering, and bring it to the tabernacle. He, 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 he. And all what we do with Christ is a personal responsibility. Greg Glory's Harvest Crusade is going to be online this year for the first time. 30-year streak is broken at Anaheim. It's going to be online. But he's still going to give the same message and the same opportunity. Would you personally like to receive Jesus Christ? It's going to be a personal invitation to respond. Just like you bring. When his offering, when he offers it, he shall offer it. He shall lay his hand on it and say, he shall kill it. It's like, wow. So it's personal. And it's the same for all. We can make the cross so distant and so religious in our mind, but we need to make it very personal, very powerful, and gripping, and heartbreaking. Because it is heartbreaking that this was the only way to redeem us back to the Father, to make peace with God. Because the whole world's at war with each other, because the whole world's at war with God. 
And we can't make the world right to be at peace with God, but we accept responsibility for us grabbing that peace offering, the Lord Jesus, and receiving him, and we have peace. We also see that there's a transfer of guilt. Verse 2, he, she, though laid their hand on the head of the offering. It's a transfer of guilt. It's a transfer of guilt. That laying the hands on is like where you're condemning that innocent animal to death for your sins, for our sins. There is a transfer of guilt. And it's like, oh, yeah, I believe Jesus died for me. Really? Well, put your hands on Jesus when he's going to the cross. Go put your hands on Jesus when they're driving the nails through his hands or his feet. Make it personal, right? Jesus isn't a symbol we wear around our neck or see as a crucifix on the wall going up like I did in the Catholic Church or symbolic on these cro- this wood cross behind me. Jesus is the Son of God and no one is more personal than him because all things are made by him and for him and him all things consist. He is the preeminent one. He is the final authority over everything. This is his universe and he came and died for us. And while we're yet enemies, Christ died for us that we could be reconciled to the Father. And greater love has no man than this and lay down his life for his friends and he died for us while we were yet enemies. So lay your hands on Jesus as they drive the nails in him. Just jam that crown of thorns on his head because that's what we did. That's who we are in that story of the cross. We are the Romans mocking him, blasting him at the foot of the cross because that's who we are. Lay your hands on him. If he's your savior, then you lay your hands on him. And this is who we sing to and worship in this church. This isn't a political pep rally. This is the church of the living God. And that's who we worship. So lay your hands on the peace offering, King Jesus. Lay your hands on him. Let all those sins be confessed over him as he dies in our place. As he is separated from the Father instead of us separated from the Father. As his blood becomes the only blood that is acceptable blood for our sins. Because, as we're told... If the blood of bulls and goats was sufficient, then it would have stopped, but it never stopped. And Christ wouldn't have had to come, but he did come, and he had to come. And Christ, if his death wasn't sufficient to seal the deal, then he would keep dying, and the priesthood would continue, and we'd be offering animal sacrifices at the Western Wall right now in Jerusalem, but we don't, nor should we, because Christ was offered up once for all, that we are saved once for all, and he ever lives and seated at the right hand of the Father and lives to intercede for us. And therefore, we can come to him in time of mercy, in time of need, and find mercy at his throne of grace. So lay our hands on him. Lay our hands on him. Lay our hands on the crown. As the people are saying, crucify, crucify, instead of Hosanna, Hosanna, lay our hands on him. Because that's a great savior for a great sinner. And great sinners appreciate a great savior. For the one who's forgiven much loves much. And the final thing that we see, as I just mentioned, is the blood. We see there that the blood must be sprinkled. It says they shall sprinkle the blood all around the altar. I told you that bronze altar is messy business. When Baziel was building that thing, I just tried to imagine, because the same craftsman built the Ark of the Covenant with gold and overlaid the gold, the poles, the acacia poles with gold. And gold is more favorable than bronze. And it's, it's more glamorous. And it literally was in the, te- in the tabernacle service. And the, the, the bronze altar, day after day, it just kept going on. The blood, the blood, the blood. If you ever see like a video clip of like a meat factory and they're just slaughtering animals, you know, it's just like, ah, it's just, it's, it's, it's just, ah, it's repulsive. Day after day after day after day. It's just, you become numb to it probably just like when you go to war. Eventually you just become numb to the chaos and the madness. You become numb to anything if you're not sharp in the Lord, Right? You become desensitized. We want to be sensitive always to the Lord. But the blood. So here comes the blood. Now this blood of this sacrifice. Okay, so we brought it. Yeah, it's us. It's our responsibility. Don't look, don't look at the animal. Lay your hands. And then the life is gone. And the life is gone. And then... Hopefully there's a sense of remorse and repentance and all that when you're, that you'd be feeling at that time. I mean, that's, if you go forward in a harvest crusade, you should feel something like that, I guess. Depending on whatever it was that brought you to Christ, if you come to Christ, 
Maybe you need to come to Christ tonight. But then the blood comes out. And the blood is serious business because the life is in the blood. And remember, God said, let us make man in our image. And he made them male and female in his image. We are created in the image of God. And so much like God in his image that in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, when it starts with Mary, the Virgin Mary, and traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, it says the son of God, the son of God, you know, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. So Jesus is the son of Mary, and he keeps going, going through David, then through Abraham, and then Adam is referred to ultimately, when it gets to Adam, Adam, the son of, you know what it says? The son of God. We're told in Adam all sin and die, but in Christ the second Adam all are made alive. And whereas sin abounded to death in the first Adam, life abounds to life in this, uh, grace abounds to life in the second Adam. We are made in God's image and in his glory. When he comes in his glory for, with, the combo package, the church, however it's going to play out, we are told that we will be in glory with him in that glory. You and I, our destiny through faith in Jesus Christ with this peace offering is glory for all eternity. A glory that cannot be uttered and is hard to comprehend when it's even described in the book of Revelation. Our future destiny is total glory with the Son of God, the King of glory. So when you look out over the universe... And you look at all the supernovas and galaxies and all this incredible details that God has given in the macro universe or the microscopic world or anything that all that you see that could be glorious, even in a fallen sinful universe, he's going to come and he's going to reverse it and it's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. And all right now, all humanity, even the animal kingdom, the whole planet, it's just the entire universe is groaning for the redemption of the purchase prize, the inheritance of the church and the glory for the eternal kingdom and the eternal ages. And actually, this world as we know it, it is going to fold and melt and burn like a supernova, like a black hole. It's going to go boom. We're told that in Second Peter chapter 3. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth with no more tears, no more sorrow, none of that. And this is all a test. And this is all preparation for eternal glory. But the blood is a serious issue for peace with God. It's a very serious issue. And the blood... Abel's blood from his sheep doesn't match because the sheep is not made in God's image and glory. It's subject to man, but man is subject to God. The head of man is Christ, and the head of Christ is the Father, right? We know that. That's what Corinthians tells us. A sheep is not an equal offering for our sins because a sheep does what sheep does because it's a sheep, but we rebel against God because we have a sin offering and a trespass offering. We're born with that sinful nature, and we rebel against God with our trespass offering. It shows that we trespass. The sheep's just, you know, they say that sheep are probably the stupidest animals on the planet. Isn't it funny that we're compared to them? It's ironic. Those created in the image and glory of God are compared to sheep. God compares us to sheep. Not me. That's God. <laughs> he compares us to sheep. But the sheep has no moral uh, cognizance or ability to worship God. We're created to worship him. And even Jesus said, hey, if you don't worship me, these rocks will praise me. So if the church doesn't want to praise him, uh, you can hear a jetty singing for the Lord at Bolsa Chica. Listen closely. I think I hear the rocks praising the Lord. The blood is critical. That sheep, Abel, not equal. Moses, the Passover lamb, not equal. 1,500 years of bringing these offerings to the bronze altar, just not equal. They're not sufficient. But Christ isn't just equal, he's superior. And that's why we're told in Romans that a good person can't die for someone else. So if we think of who, you know, who has the best record of being good <laughs> in this church, and we match them up with the person who has the worst record of being good. I don't guess who that is. But we match them up and we say, this person's really bad, this person's really good. They're both human beings. They're going to die and give the blood sacrifice human for human because they both can worship God or rebel against God. And that should do it, except the Bible tells us that won't do it. Because no one is good enough to offer that blood as a substitution or propitiation. You can't, like... Lay your, you, like, you can't lay your hands on another human being saying, thank you for dying for me. There you go. That doesn't work. Because in Adam, all sin and die. It could never work. That, that person could never be the peace offering. That woman, that man could never be good enough to be the peace offering for your sins, my sins, and the sins of the world of everyone out these doors. But Jesus, who lived the perfect sin in this life, born of the virgin, he is 
the perfect sin offering. He is the offering that is superior because we're created by him and for him and held together in him. He is God. So God himself shed his blood without sin on the cross, not to sprinkle blood of bulls and goats around the bronze altar, but on the cross he shed his blood that we could be once saved for all through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the blood of Christ that saves us. We saw this when we studied the Passover lamb, but this is a little more real right here, a little more raw, that bronze altar and the blood being sprinkled. This is the real deal right here. It's this blood that saves us, the blood of Christ. So this offering is symbolic of what Christ would do on the cross. So again, we lay our hands on the peace offering. Well, we grab the peace offering, we get the peace offering, and we've got to take them to the place, personal responsibility. We then lay our hands on the peace offering and transfer our guilt to the innocent substitute. And then that innocent substitute is slaughtered on our behalf, and its blood is sprinkled around the altar to make atonement at one mint with God. And the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It just covers it. But Christ died once for all that the sin could be completely taken away. So with this in mind, Peace offering, peace with God. Now let's think what it ultimately comes down to. For it says, the last part is that in verse 3, then he shall offer from the sacrifice of peace offering. And it goes on for the greater details for the rest of the chapter. But we've got to come back to this. It's a sacrifice of peace. It is the peace offering. It is making peace with God of sinful humanity, one by one, with God, through faith in the substitute for our sins, Jesus Christ. And peace is made. But as I mentioned earlier, and now I'll go into detail for a moment, the peace that he gives us is perfect peace. And we have it. So once we make peace with God, with Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, our peace offering, the fullness is a shadow, but the substance is Christ. Once we have that peace through faith in Jesus Christ with God, we have a peace that surpasses all understanding. We have a peace that's promised to us to never leave us. My peace I give you. Peace I give you. And it's a peace that's superior to the world, like we talked about earlier. We can always trust in the peace that God gives us. We are told that we're to be anxious for nothing but through prayer and supplication to let our requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So this peace is a power in the life of a believer, every believer, to to guard their heart, their inner woman, their inner man, and their mind, to guide their emotion, who you really are, your soul, if you will, and to guide your mind, to protect your mind from everything that would take that peace from you or come against that peace. So, With peace vertically with God, you can have perfect peace in your mind, in your heart, and it can just be total chaos and total dramatic storm around you in your life, in your world, in your country, in your family, in your personal life, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds. So we don't have to understand the peace. Know that. We do not have to understand the peace of God. We just need to believe and trust that we have received it. And we're told in the Old Testament that he'll keep thee in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusts in thee. Now that was spoken by Isaiah to a people that were about to be taken away and lose everything, stripped of their entire identity and taken away into captivity to a distant land by the Assyrians. And he promised them he'll keep them in perfect peace. So the key is the faith in Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and he's the source of our peace. He's the prince of peace. He's the king of peace. And he is the focal point of our objective. And so long as we keep Christ enthroned in our hearts and at the forefront of our minds, whatever's going around us, we will be at peace. And I mentioned this on Tuesday night. I've been in the eye of a hurricane. How many of you have ever been in the eye of a hurricane? Raise your hand. Anyone in this room? A couple. Okay. All right. A couple. Debbie. John. Well, what happens when you're in the eye of a hurricane is it's so intense before it's coming. Hurricane David, 1979 in Florida, I was there for the East Coast of the Florida Pro. And we were staying there in Melbourne Beach, and we had to, Michael Ho and Hans Hiedemann, the, the famous wine surfers, we all stayed at Melbourne Beach High School. It was, a, it was the Red Cross Center for Safety. And that hurricane came up, and I'd never seen anything like it in my life. I mean, you're talking things flying by, pieces of buildings, and, and it was like 100 mile an hour winds, and it's so terrifying. It's insane how terrifying it is. And then suddenly, 
it just stops. I mean, it's 100 miles an hour, and I mean, it's all of a sudden, it just stops. Like, how do you put the brakes on a 100-mile-an-hour wind? It just stops. But the barometric pressure, it's, it's, got, it's going, and it's going so fast. And the eye can be bigger or smaller, but if you're in the middle of the eye, and if we just followed the eye up the East Coast, we would, we would never hit the 100-mile-an-hour wind eventually until it dissipated by Halifax or something, and it was downgraded to a tropical depression or something. It's an amazing thing. And it's like, you go outside, you're like, look, I'm dancing in the eye of a hurricane, you know? And then, uh, or, you know, you know, but anyways, and then it goes past you and the wind's the exact opposite direction, but it's 100 miles an hour and everything's flying again, but it's coming from the other direction. So when they got blown this way coming, gets blown that way going. It's an incredible thing to be in the eye of a hurricane. He will keep thee in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusts in thee. It's like right there. And you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you read about all the Christians on record there in the early church that were led to their death or burned at the stake during the Reformation period. And time and time again, the testimony, uh, it was it was Ryland, Bishop Ryland, who said, hey, I'll let you know. Okay, so they came to him and said, look, you need to recount your, recant your faith. So just say, you know, you know, life is sweet, so you want to live. And, 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 and death is, 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 you know, brutal, whatever. Or, and he's, and the, life is sweet, you want to live, and the fire is, is, is hot, and you don't want to go there. And he said, yes, but the life to come is more sweet, and the fires to come are more hot. They tried to persuade him to recant, recant his faith that night. And then the next day, they put a dunce cap on him and marched him through the city town, took him up to the top of the hill and burned him at the stake. And he died. And time and time again, when you read about the testimony of the martyrs throughout church age, you will find that they'll testify. Oh, he did say, if the flames don't burn, I'll raise my hands. And he raised his hands. He, I guess you can't stop people from raising their hands in the fire, huh? <laughs> he raised his hands in praise to the Lord as a testimony to everyone else that the fire, the fire doesn't burn. And even does burn, what's that? These light afflictions working for a far more eternal way to glory. He'll keep us in perfect peace. And I shared this Tuesday, and now I share this now. I don't want anyone under my watch, where I'm the pastor, church, to be confused about who we serve and who's in charge of our lives in this church. And I don't want you to be in fear about what's going on in our world or in our country or in our society or in your life. Paul the Apostle said, with a bleak future in front of me, said, none of these things move me, nor do I count myself, my life dear to me, that I may run the race set before me and fulfill what God has entrusted to me. And I'm innocent of the blood of all men. By the way, he said that there too, that blood guilt. He said, it's not on me. And I just want to remind ourselves that this is who we worship. This is who we're singing to. I've tried to make sense of everything. Today, someone said to me, It's exhausting. And so I leave with a couple thoughts because my hand is forced to speak, and so I'm going to speak. I've held my peace for four months, and there's things I need to say right now. This whole thing began with clarity and compliance. And we had a clear vision of what we're trying to do and a roadmap, and we did as best we could, and we fulfilled it perfectly to be compliant to our president and to our governor and our local laws. It was clear, and it was to be compliant. And we were for months. But then it became confusing and arbitrary. Confusing because things were changing. I can't tell you how many people told me it's a moving target. Yeah, well, that's, that's not really how God works. His plumb line is straight and clear. So we entered a phase around May where it became confusing and arbitrary. In other words, we can't meet as a church, but you can still have an abortion at Planned Parenthood. That is arbitrary. So let's make no mistake about that. So we went from, in this state, clarity and compliance to confusion and arbitrary. I tried to watch the press conferences, and I tried to understand what I was supposed to do. I got so confused. The longer the governor talked, the less I understood. Honestly, I'm just telling you. Then we moved to a different stage. It was lawlessness and hypocrisy. So we went from confusion and arbitrary things to lawlessness and hypocrisy. And we all watched that, and we all saw that. And we thought, this is lawlessness and hypocrisy. And by the way, when it comes to lawlessness, that's the telltale mark of the Antichrist. That's actually his title, essentially, the lawless one, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, about the end of the age. And we're told that the sign of the last days is lawlessness. 
God is never in lawlessness. Lawlessness and hypocrisy and destruction, by the way, too. Now we're in this stage that is discriminatory and political. That's what we move to now. Discriminatory and political. So a box store has different standards than a church. And I can go to a restaurant in Huntington Beach, which has an illegal setup in a parking lot. I'm sure they're not zoned for that, but I understand why they're that. We gave a very large tip. We want to support the local business. But we're all in there eating and no one's wearing masks. But we're supposed to be masked in here. I've lost track of it all. Honestly, I have. That's a different statement at a different time. So this is where we're at right now. And we're also told that during the 4th of July not to get together with your families, but if you want to protest, you can. Shoreline Baptist Church has an official position. They're protesting the governor. And they are worshiping and singing to Jesus. And that's their protest. Because he said we can protest. And that's their protest. I'm going to give you some Bible verses before we leave. Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is the ultimate authority. He holds the universe together. Don't ever forget that. Put your hands on the sacrifice. See the blood. Feel the thorns. That is who the final authority is. He's a preeminent one in this church. It's all about him. He's the head of this church, and he's holding our lives together, and our hearts are beating right now because of him. He is the final authority. Now, we got lots of people quoting Romans 13, submit to authority, submit to authority. Listen, it says that the authority, the reason you submit to them is because you, you, should, you should submit to them and that you should only fear them if you do evil. Well, we're not doing evil. But what, what does happen when authority does evil or things contrary to the Lord? Well, Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin Council and they said, you cannot preach the name of Jesus. And they go, well, look, you decide what you think is right or not, but we cannot stop doing what we are called to do. So we know right there, there's a higher law of the gospel. Very clear. Don't be confused at all. That's very clear. It's very clear. I mean, that's why Brother Andrew took Bibles to Eastern Europe for all those years. That's why there's so many people in death camps right now in China because they keep preaching the gospel and they keep meeting, they keep praising, they keep worshiping, and they keep serving. Because there's a higher law. The higher law is the church is the church. And that's what Peter and John said. So you guys figure out what you think is right with God, but we, we got to do what's the higher law. You know, on this topic, when Moses' parents were told to throw their son in the river and feed him to alligators, which was the king's decree, we were told in Hebrews, in the Hall of Faith, that the child was beautiful, they hid him, and they did not fear the king's decree. When Rahab hid the spies, when they went into the land, she risked her life to hide them and said they weren't there when she hid them. There's a higher law. When my wife was taking her psychology major, we watched movies about the higher moral law when sometimes you can just talk yourself out of doing the right thing because people have made the wrong thing the right thing. And so you're going to do the wrong thing because they say it's the right thing instead of doing the right thing, which they call the wrong thing. And that's what Isaiah said. What do those who call good, evil, and evil, good? We are in a very tough place right now with a lot of things. But when it comes to singing to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a very simple thing for me. First of all, my personal testimony, in 30 years of church, when I've had to deal with difficult things, and if you see me run across the sanctuary and grab somebody, I've done it more than once. I don't need Alex to do it, and I don't need Sam to do it. When someone is distracting during worship time for Jesus, I got this one. And I'll go from over here to right over there, and we'll be like, what is going on? I stopped a service only once in my life in Vermont because a guy was hindering the worship of Jesus in that service. Ten of us. A cappella. Pam, Pam O'Connor was singing. It's beautiful. So it's what we were, who we were. I said, listen here. You're welcome to stay, but we're worshiping Jesus. And if you're going to try and stop that, you need to leave and never come back. So you decide right now. Couldn't hide. It's in front of the whole church. It is kind of a different service like tonight. Just got to do what you got to do. 
So when I come to what I don't know, I fall back on what I do know. And I do know that Joey Brand has always had in my DNA to defend the worship of Jesus in his church and anything that would come against it. That's who I am. Now, I can't speak for Pastor Chuck in heaven, but I think that Pastor Chuck could tolerate a lot of things, but I don't think Pastor Chuck would come out on a Sunday and not be singing to him if that was tomorrow morning. Now, that's my personal speculation. you got to separate that from the Bible study. That's just my personal conviction. But I just, I just can't picture that at all. What's he care? He's in heaven singing in glory. And <laughs> we got to figure this out. This is, our, this is our timeline. Jesus sang after instituting communion when he made a new covenant at the lowest point of his life, when he's about to surrender to the Father's will and sweat great drops of blood, he sang with his 12 apostles. They were the church, and he walked out of that upper room, and they sang a hymn. He sang to the Father at the hardest moment of his life. To that point, he sang praise. By the way, the book of Habakkuk, which is a very difficult book, it's all nothing but bad news. At the end, it says, to the chief musician on a stringed instrument. The whole book of Habakkuk is a song. I'll do a work in your day, or declare to you, you would not believe it. Everything's evil, it's all gone bad, and the worst people are coming soon. Write the vision, make it plain. He'll cover the faces of the world like the water covers the sea. He's coming. Though there's no fig on the fig tree, and nothing's on the vine, and no cattle in the stall, he's the king, and I'm going to worship him on the high hill that he's placed me to the chief musician on a stringed instrument. I'm going to suggest to you singing is critical in your lowest moments. Book of Acts when Paul and Silas were thrown in jail. What are they doing? They're singing. They're singing and praising the Lord. Brought an earthquake on too and led people to the saving faith. Now, I'll admit it's not a church service, but two or more is the church, right? And the other prisoners were listening, right? Now, what will people think? Yeah, I guess so, huh? So we see that. In the book of James, it says everyone's cheerful in a church gathering. What do they do? Sing. In the book of Colossians, what's it say? When you come together, you share and you sing joyful songs out of your heart with full melody. In 1 Corinthians, it says when you come together as a church, each one has a word, a psalm, a song to share. It says when you're gathered together, you can prophesy, but if you speak in tongues, make sure someone can interpret because we need to understand and, and function as a church together in our understanding and in our singing. Therefore, I'll sing with understanding. It is very clear in the New Testament that the, the, the New Testament church sang. They sang in their corporate gatherings. Now, I'm not saying there's not a time where you wouldn't sing maybe. I did read in Prokhanov's book, at one point in time, there were gathered where no one sang because, you know, like the forerunners of the KGB, the NKDV, whatever, they were out there and you know, it's just like, hey, let's just, you know, not sing this time. But when you start to set a model, like, where are you going to draw the line? You need to know, for me as the pastor of this church, on behalf of the board of elders, we're very comfortable singing, no matter what. And we're comfortable providing an environment where you can sing praises to the Lord, no matter what. I don't need someone to tell me you can worship the Lord with your lives, you worship the Lord. Of course you can. I know that. But he inhabits the praises of his people. And people go, well, that's kind of a stretch on that verse. Whatever. They sang to the Lord. What happened when they defeated Pharaoh? They sang with tambourines, percussions, right? All over the Old Testament, they're singing. What did David do when he's the king? We need thousands, hundreds of singers. And I don't need to do a church service, a big old choir to say, no one tells me we can't sing. But just know this, we're singing here. And I'm willing to face whatever that brings my way. Okay, so you just need to know. Yeah, I appreciate that. Hey. If you don't want to sing, there's plenty of churches tomorrow that won't be singing. You can go to them. Or you can come here and not sing if you like this church. You're not saying you have to sing. I'm just saying we're going to sing. And that's that. Because I believe the Bible strongly supports the position that the local church, the Old Testament worship, New Testament singing and worship, and, of course, I'm going to close tonight with the book Revelation. Why not? Yeah, we need to know what our preview is. Right? If you're going somewhere, I'm trying to get back to Russia. I'm just waiting for the country to open up. You study Russian. I'm reading a book on Peter the Great right now, just building up on my Russian history. I can almost read the uh, Cyrillic alphabet, Russian alphabet. I can read Russian. Can you believe that? Isn't that crazy? I can read Russian. It's nuts. It clicked. I asked the Lord to help me. I, I can read Russian. Isn't that nuts? So I got to go back to Russia, right? Like, what good is reading Russian if you don't go back to Russia? But in Revelation chapter 5, it says that when they're saying, worthy is the lamb, it says that... Um, 
It says in verse 8, Now, they take, when he, that is Jesus, took the scroll, it's chapter 5, Revelation, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. The 24 elders, most people agree, represent the church. Each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. So this is the song of heaven with the, the church. You are worthy to take the scroll, Jesus, and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. That's the song of the church, of course. Out of every tongue, tribe, and people, and nation. And you've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And then they said later on, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever. And they said, Amen. And they, and they worshiped and they sang. That's heaven. So you have praise in the Old Testament, you have praise in the New Testament church, and you have praise in heaven. It's part of our DNA. And uh, I'm not going to let anyone take it from me. So I've already determined, like, it is what it is. And I still have one more verse to read to you from Hebrews as well. This was the word of the Lord to me the other morning. See, because, like, in World War I, people weren't afraid to die. They were afraid to be maimed. i got to say that. In World War I, most people were not afraid to go over the hill and just be gunned down. They were afraid to lose a limb, you know, or be blinded or get mustard gas. Like, they are afraid to be maimed. And I'll be honest. I'm not afraid to die, but I'm afraid to be maimed. Okay, I think I can speak for all of us. So we all have certain fears that we work through. Like, what, what's your fear? You know, the devil plays on fear. God, God's faith, devil's fear. But in Hebrews 13, it says this, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So would I die tomorrow? You think I'm going to feel bad for what I said tonight? What if we didn't sing? Oh, hey, Jesus, it's you. Sorry about that last play. Look, there's just comes a time you have to trust in the Lord. So this is where I'm at. This is where our leadership's at. And I, I think you understand me clearly. And yet there was one more verse, and I think this sums up how I'm trying to go forward. As a, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, a husband, a father, a grandfather, and a pastor, and a citizen of the United States of America. It says that, Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. That's how I want to live my life. And I didn't want to spend 10 minutes talking about this, but my hand is forced. I want to live a quiet, peaceful life. I want to mind my own business, be a great citizen. I pay my taxes. I declare everything. I pay my taxes. I try and do good. I try and help society. I pray for the president. I pray for the governor. I pray for the community. I pray for you. I'm trying to be a really good citizen in Jesus' name. But just know this. Whether I'm free, incarcerated, pastor or not, I'm going to sing to Jesus when I want to, where I want to, how I want to.